You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. You know, every once in a while we do make mistakes and boy, we made a bunch uh, (laughs) uh, over the past couple of weeks. So people were nice enough to write in and let us know. Uh, Last week or the week before... I had made mention about a famous picture by Robert Maplethorpe of Whoopi Goldberg in a, in a bathtub full of milk. Remember that? I do. Yeah, well, it turns out that's not Maplethorpe at all. Uh, that is a photographer, Annie Leibovitz, oh, yeah. who did a lot of, yeah, she did a lot of work with like Rolling Stone and stuff like that. She did. She, yeah, she was a celebrity photographer. So that makes yeah. way more sense. Okay, than, cool. than Maplethorpe, yeah. And uh, I, I heard you found something, too. I did, indeed. Through my extensive research, which was Googling, mm-hmm. uh, I learned that Alex Winter, co-star of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, yep. is not at all related to Sean Penn or Sean Penn's family. Not oh, only no. that, he's not even he's not even American. He's from the UK. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was way off. All right. You were, indeed. Yep. All right. Sorry, so guys. Technically, that erases all of the trivia questions that I've ever gotten wrong and we started <laughs> zero today. Thank you. Um, Alex Winter for that. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's going to eat lightning and crap thunder, kid. It's Jeff McLaudge. Admittedly, if I eat lightning, I tend to dry fire more than crap, but <laughs> the impact is the same. I didn't call you Mr. I used to say Mr. Jeff McLaudge, but tell you just Jeff. <sighs> Hi, just Jeff. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? Uh, well, funny you should ask. Normally, any conversation that takes place from my lower intestines and beyond, I usually don't talk about stuff like that. Generally. But speaking about crapping thunder, <laughs> I competed in my first and very most definitely, I shouldn't say definitely, but let's say most probably my last hot sauce gauntlet challenge. Oh, that sounds fun. Uh, it was. So, to a certain extent, to a certain point. You said that you have watched the show Hot Ones on YouTube? Yes, yeah. I have. I think that show is very funny. Yeah, well, we did those sauces. I forget which season, Oh. but we did those sauces. So, yeah, there were 10 sauces that were getting like increasingly hotter, but we didn't eat wings because, I guess, you know, some people are vegetarian or, or what have you. So they actually put them on like popcorn, which I didn't think was a great idea because one, popcorn gets mushy whenever it gets wet. Yeah. And two, popcorn is not really digestion friendly in the first place. No, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's, this isn't so much like goodbye, it's more like see you later. Yes. So the first, the first, they didn't give us any water. I mean, I don't know why they didn't give us water water to you know help you wash it down i guess they wanted people choking but what they did give us was some celery and some carrots right yeah so the first one the first the first hot sauce i ate that was not mouth hot at all but as soon as it hit my stomach 
and they must have, the the base of it must have been apple cider vinegar or something because as soon as it hit my stomach i was like "Ooh, we are in for a long night a very long night. <laughs> yeah but that was it was easy none of it was really all that bad i mean i love hot sauces and i grew ghost peppers in my garden last summer so Uh, You know, it's going to take a lot to affect me. Once we got up around seven, now there was 12 of us that competed. And the guy behind, I was on the front row, the guy that was like above me puked on number seven. Like, nice. I just hear, oh, from the audience. And I turn around and I look, and this guy is just like gagging. And then I see it like start to come out of his mouth. And then mm-hmm. he did like he didn't do like the Play-Doh Fun Factory thing. He actually this is so gross. He actually this <clears throat> hauled it back down, which is oh that's got to burn twice as bad. Yeah, exactly. It's getting, yeah, now it's got some bile on it too, right? So I'm thinking to myself, no, you're disqualified on a couple of reasons. One, that should just dis- disqualify you. You couldn't keep it down. And two, I just washed my hair. I don't need you throwing up on me. <laughs> So, number eight was starting to get down to brass tacks. Number nine was 666, they called it. 666,000 Scoville. Just for math, it's about two and a half times as hot as a jalapeno or uh, just about the same temperature as a habanero, right? Okay. And that one, that one was the madman. That one, I was like... I picked up my napkin. I'm blowing it to my napkin. That one was mouth hot. That one was something else. And now my stomach Mm -hmm. is starting to, you know, it's starting to kick in a little bit in my stomach too. Because you got to remember, it's not just like I just did that one hot sauce. I had a lot of buildup to it. Right. I have all these hot sauces and all this vinegar and all this whatever the, you know, the, the coagulants are. You know, just sitting in my stomach with popcorn. Okay, so I have questions, Bill, okay. before we go further. I understand that when it's in the format of, like, wings or boneless wings, right? Because there's a size to them. Yep. They have a weight that I understand. How much popcorn do you have to eat as part of the each sauce part of the challenge? So imagine not eating a bowl of popcorn. Oh, no, certainly not, no. I um, Picture, like, a little plastic cup that you would put ketchup in. Yeah. Like that. Okay. So that amount of popcorn. Like how many kernels? I don't okay. know because it was just this like mush, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I gotcha. Okay. Uh, by this time, a, a bunch of people have tapped out. We started with 12. We were down to eight, but seven if you use my math because pukey McPuke face doesn't count anymore as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we get up to the last one. I don't remember what it's called. I think it was called De Bomb or something like that, but it was 2 million Scoville. Right. There is nothing that grows organically that's two million Scoville. Ghost peppers are one and a half million. This is made with like hybrids and stuff, like Carolina Reapers or Jamaican Reapers or something like that. Right, right, right. And common sense is telling me, tap out. You're in Chicago, young man. This is no time to be messing around with your digestive tract. But I went for it, and I ate a two million Scoville slob of popcorn, and it wasn't <laughs> even that bad. Like my mouth, I was like, oh, that's fine. Because all the nerve endings were dead from the, you know, the one before. So here's like, here's the thing with the, sh- with the show. Like if you've watched the hot ones enough, yeah. I'm going to admit to like watching an unnecessarily large amount of episodes of this show is when folks who are tolerating the sauces really well get to the bomb, even though it's 10th out of 13, yeah. 
that's the one that breaks them. I've seen so many people say like, oh, the other ones aren't anywhere near as hot or something as that one. So to know that you got past it is uh, impressive. Yeah, uh, well, that was the last one. We had 10 sauces and that was the last one to get through. Then they made us wait five minutes and then they're like, okay, go get your milk or your water or your beer or whatever. And we all kind of high-fived and that was the end of the thing. A half an hour later, my stomach, I didn't throw up. I didn't have the trots, nothing. It just was radiating pain. I was like Napoleon, like holding on to my stomach, like, oh my God, I'm eating Tums like they're candy, just like pouring them into my mouth. I was high on my own endorphins. (laughs) I don't really remember a lot about that night. I just remember being in pain and I went to a party and I went to see, uh, I, I, we toured one of the haunted houses because I was out at the haunted house convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but seriously, dude, I was so stoned on my own endorphins. I don't remember. You know what I do remember? My friend thinking it would be funny if he like lightly punched me in the stomach and I flipped out on him. <laughs> it's like, that's how oh, Harry Houdini died, you crazy person. All right. <laughs> I'm not getting in the milk canister, although, you know, milk probably would make my stomach feel better. <laughs> Don't talk me out of the milk canister just yet. <laughs> so that's like one of those uh, bucket list things. Yeah, I wanted to do it. I did it. And I'm never doing it again. Sounds like I like spicy food just fine. But that kind of competitive sort of stunt eating, I, <laughs> it's never been my thing. <laughs> stunt eating. That's, you know? yeah, that's a good word for it. You know? yep. Yeah. You know, it's not my, not my thing. So. All right. So before we get into the show proper, I do have the very popular and, and always well-received trivia question. So, uh, movie soundtracks are always uh, very popular. It wasn't really until like Top Gun until they kind of became like a, a, a selling point. I mean, Saturday Night Fever and Thank God It's Friday, those had popular soundtracks and stuff like that. But those movies were... Grease. They, they were, well, Grease too, but those were, they're musicals. The, Grease is a musical. And Saturday Night Fever and Thank God It's Friday, the, the music was part of the movie. It took place in a dance club and all that. But the first like soundtrack, I remember them making a big deal about it, it was Top, uh, Top Gun. Uh, so the question is, what is the best-selling soundtrack of all time? Best-selling soundtrack of all time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to reserve my guess to the end. Yeah, that's a good place for I it. I have a pretty good idea. <laughs> right. I have a pretty good idea of what the best-selling soundtrack of all time is. All right. So this is going to be the week beginning, July the 25th. Hey! Isn't this something? This is our fifth uh, season, or Arthur, you're, you're and I's third season, but the fifth season of right. Twibley. Uh, seasons one and two are... It's our fifth, third season, yeah, Bill. it's our third, fifth season. <laughs> yeah, seasons one and two are kind of like uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't, like, I'm not really sure where it is, where they are. Maybe someday I'll find them. Anyway... Uh, happy anniversary, Jeff. Oh, thank you. Happy anniversary to you as well. Uh, being the, uh, the anniversary, I, that, I'll let you start. How's that? Oh, I like that. Hey, speaking of music, since we do have a music focus between the two of us, mm-hmm. July 25th, 1965, Bob Dylan is booed by sections of the crowd at the Newport Folk Festival for performing with an electric guitar, ultimately creating the genre of folk rock. And he didn't just get booed. They came out and turned off his instruments. He started to play, you know, with the harmonica thing on and with his acoustic guitar. And he did a few songs. And he said, all right, it's enough of that. And he brought some guys on stage with amplifiers. And they plugged in. And people were like, boo. And 
as we've talked about in the past about the Newport Folk Festival, Newport's a town of like 17,000 people. Right. And at the Newport Folk Festival, there's like 200,000 people. Like It's like a ridiculous number of people in the 60s come to the the town for this. I mean, for something that's been around as long as it is, it's still like crazy – like amount of people that go to it. I remember Roger Waters showed up to it one year. I don't know if he plugged in or yeah. not, but yeah, I remember Roger Waters from Pink Floyd just like randomly showed up one year. Yeah, it must have been something like oh, Roger Waters trying to play comfortably numb, you know, or something. I'm here to let um, you all know that David Gilmour is a complete bastard, and <laughs> and see you later. Yeah. <laughs> yes, all of your politics are wrong. Uh, <laughs> I always like this. You can go watch videos of this like kind of happening as it takes place because between the late 1950s uh, through the early 60s and into like around 65, Bob Dylan became humongously popular. He effectively built the American folk music in the modern rock and roll age. Right. He was like a super duper star. And to come out and just be met with this reception would be like if like the Rolling Stones came out and started just playing acoustic and people were throwing beer bottles at them. It's like if you Kiss know, like, like started doing disco. Or if Kiss started playing <laughs> a backing track. It's, no I'm kidding. It's if Kiss did disco and it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and they were made for loving you, baby. But at any rate, this bursts folk rock. This merges that forcibly merges electric rock and roll. And the stylings of folk music so that other artists could then experiment with it. You get stuff like Buffalo Springfield, Simon and Garfunkel who make that transition. And it starts to feed into the sunshine pop that we talked about before. And this is all of it is the impetus from this day at the Newport Folk Festival. Thanks, Bob. Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> hey, early word to you is play a song. <laughs> all right. Uh, moving on to the 26th, July 26th. 1896, in New Orleans, Louisiana, the Vitascope Hall, which is the first full-time for-profit movie theater, opens up. Oh. Which, in 1896, I can only imagine, I'm, it must be like one guy standing there with like a foot pad. Like, look, it's a little guy <laughs> running by. I'm sure it was like, they were trying to figure some way to get naked people on the stage <laughs> or on the screen at that point, like... Look, this, these trains, like, you know, coming out of the station or people walking out of mills, like, it's bringing in people. We're making a little money. But if those people were naked, we'd have tons of people in here, you know? <laughs> Vitesco Paul set the, the stage for, a, it must be that kind of week for us, but they set the stage for how movie theaters would function after that. So it mirrored a dance hall that you would find, except with the stage removed and a big sheet hanging up as a screen with a, I'm going to guess, a hand-cranked projector. <laughs> With naked people coming out of a train. With naked people coming out of a train, yes. Ooh la la. You go to movie theaters now, and it looks like they could probably fit, eh, I don't know, like where I go now, maybe 100, maybe 150 people. But, man, remember the mall in the 70s and the 80s? Man, it was like 400 people it seemed like it could fit in there. Well, I remember going to see Star Wars at the North Dartmouth Mall. I remember going to see Friday the 13th, I think part three. It was when the mall hired security guards to sit in the back to try and catch people who were drinking and smoking, at which we knew the security guards, so they were drinking and smoking with us when when, when I was in there, at least. At the bump, the security guard for a light. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those like the inmates in charge of the asylum type things. But yeah, I do remember that experience of like having just tons of people and that long sort of downward ramp to the bottom. And if you sat in the front, you know, you pretty much were laying underneath the screen. Oh my God, I saw Batman like that. I saw Tim Burton's Batman. We went in there and even though the place sat like a 
you know, like a like an arena show, like you're going to see uh, yeah. the Rolling Stones or something. There was no room to see to sit anywhere except for the front row. And I watched Batman just like with my neck at a ninety degree angle to my body, just like <laughs> looking up at the screen. That was awful. It's a Batman's nostrils. Yeah. That's the whole movie. Everybody's right? super tall and skinny. Holy sinus is Batman. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't like saying this phrase, but I'm going to have to in this case. Kids today don't know how luxurious movie theaters are compared to what we had back in the day. And I'm quite sure my parents before me didn't have it much better. Oh, and I'm sure my grandparents were like just standing, <laughs> just standing with no shoes on in the snow, watching a black and white movie at Vita, you know, Vita Hall or whatever. Yeah, looking at a um, flip pad. <laughs> looking at well, a person acting out a movie. <laughs> wait a minute that sounds like outdoor theater um so yeah and movie theaters like we were just saying a couple of seconds ago now it's you know it's kind of like in your like in your living room they're super comfortable they got recliners they're real wide so they could accommodate like whatever sitting position you want to put yourself in i never or very rarely anyway put the legs up because once i get in that like semi-horizontal position i'm out i just fall asleep I have the body shape and proportions that there is no comfortable place to be in those recliners. When I, when I sit in them, my feet aren't touching the floor. And no matter where I put them, it's like the folds in the chair are, do not match up with the folds in my body for my knees and spine and stuff. So it's really weird. I, I, like, I find myself looking for cinemas that have older style seats without those to go to if I can. Just because I end up you know sort of walking out of it like I have scoliosis. All right, what do we got for the 27th? July 27th, 1982, the musical Little Shop of Horrors, based on 1960s horror film, cheapo horror film for Roger Corman, written by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman as a musical, opens up off-Broadway at the Orpheum Theater, goes on to run Broadway, be made into a fantastic film with Rick Moranis and... And Steve Martin and Bill Murray and... And Ellen Green. And it's the first film for, like, Tisha Campbell, who went on to be in a whole bunch of stuff. She's one of the... The chorus, such a good film, uh, and a great musical too. I guess the st- I've never seen the stage play, but I guess the stage play ends differently than the movie does. I've seen it twice. I've I've seen the stage production of it twice. The local theater has done it twice with two completely different casts and probably about twelve years apart. And to be honest, I couldn't tell you how the stage production and or the movie ends. <laughs> But uh, it's a lot of fun, I can tell you that. Yeah, it is. It's a ton of fun. I, I watched it with, I introduced my daughter to it when she was around 12. Yep. Like right right after, the week or so after I introduced her to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh-huh. Which, looking back at that as a parent, probably... Yeah, you probably should have started with a little shop and worked your way up, yeah. I probably should have worked my way But you know what? It doesn't matter. All those things make for good conversations, right? Yeah, she's a perfectly well-adjusted adult now who makes vulgar birthday cakes, yeah. But it's one that we've watched like 9,000 times in our house because it was so much, so much fun to watch. And it really doesn't get boring or tiring or whatever. It, you can sing along with it even if you've seen it 100 times like I have. Oh, this is a little interesting bit that I did not know. Do you know who directed it? Uh, Frank Oz. I yeah, think. Frank Oz directed the movie, yeah. Which explains the, uh, the amazing puppetry. If you watch the Blu-ray version, yep. it has the original ending that he proposed okay. with the plants just destroying all of humanity yes <laughs> which isn't how the movie actually ends but that's the ending that he proposed he said well we, w- we want to destroy the entire planet <laughs> the execs were like well, but like rick moranis and ellen green don't they get out in the end well no they get eaten <laughs> you know 
<laughs> and eaten they were. So, so on July the twenty eighth, nineteen forty five, a U.S. B twenty five bomber crashes into the seventy ninth floor of the Empire State Building, and fourteen people were killed, including the pilot and his two crew members. Uh, I'm putting, I'm throwing the flag down. That's my one football reference <laughs> that I'm ever going to use on this show. Throwing the penalty flag down because have you forgotten, Bill? That this is this week was way better last year, and our focus is on things that are like funny and or interesting, and less on fourteen dead people and a dead pilot from a plane crash. As I was saying, a female elevator operator survives a seventy-five story elevator plunge, which still stands to this day as the Guinness record for the longest survived elevator fall, which opens a oh. lot of questions up for me right now. That's an impressive silver lining. You know what? I withdraw my penalty <laughs> call. Yeah, elevator girl Betty Lou Oliver. She was 20 years old in 1945. Plummeted 75 stories in an elevator. And I'm sure had some terrifying concerns during that plummet. 75 stories is a lot of stories. That's like almost 1,000 feet. She just walks out at the very last minute like Bugs Bunny. Just I'm not a math guy, as we all know. But I'm trying to calculate, like, how long she was plummeting down. Right, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and try to figure it out, too, but... No, no, I'm just saying, can you imagine the amount of, like, shrieking, horrifying terror that you would have for that amount of time? And then to be hit the ground and break your ankle. Yeah. <laughs> and then the door's open. Boop! <laughs> Please watch the step. <laughs> First floor, ladies' lingerie. <laughs> Reception. Wow. That record still stands to this day because nobody wants to try it, nor will anybody let you try to beat it. <laughs> I guess you'd have to blow the cables in some other elevator for a higher floor count to make a, a record attempt at that. Yeah, so. who's going to let you, though? No, no, one, no one's going to let you do oh that. Oh, my God, dude. The elevator, the elevator that we had... You know, there was four uh, four cars There was uh, uh, that we had in Chicago when I was at that hot sauce contest. Number one, we tried to avoid that one because one time when we were going down, it was making what I can only describe to you as Warner Brothers cartoon type noises. You just hear <laughs> like clanging bars and stuff like that. Like it was cartoonish in nature, but horror movie in, in nature as well. Because we were like, oh, my God, this is it. This is it. This is, this is how I die. We're going to beat Elevator Girl's record. Oh, my God. I'm going to go to heaven with a stomach ache. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> All right. Next up on the 29th. July 29th, Bill, is one of our unusual holidays. Yay. And, and normally we celebrate things that we understand, <laughs> like National Pancake Day, which is my favorite holiday. Sure. Or, you know... Um, Flip-flop day. Intergenerational table tennis day or whatever. Yep. But July 29th is actually System Administrator Appreciation Day. Okay. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, it means that it's the day that the system administrator at wherever your workplace is threatens to turn off your access to the internet if you don't give him a card. Oh, IT So guys. effectively, it's the IT guy. Yes. Oh, okay. Traditional uh, celebrations include eating Hot Pockets and watching episodes of the IT crowd and or quoting Doctor Who to the point where other people want to hit you over the head with a book. We had an IT guy a couple of years back. His name his name was Tim, who we just started calling him IT Tim, and he was a cool guy. His contract ran out. We got another guy, and I think his name was Aleem. He was hyper-focused. When he was working, he was working and did not want to be bothered 
not conversational at all. And unfortunately for everybody, he was always working. So everybody thought he was like the biggest <laughs> dick. Um, I happened to catch him like just as he was going on break and he wasn't working one time. And he was actually a really cool guy. But when he was, yeah, but when he was working, hyper focused. Yeah. Super focused. Yeah. Yeah. And then his contract ran, ran and I, I appreciated Aleem. Um, <laughs> today, I would appreciate Aleem today if he was still around. Uh, but the new guy that we got. I don't even know what he looks like. I think I caught him out of the corner of my eye, and then I turned and he was gone. He's like an illusion. <laughs> <laughs> He's an illusion. Yeah. It's like a, like an eight an eight gig thumb drive. I saw it here somewhere, and it's gone now. Yeah, yeah. I think we should appreciate the IT guy simply because every IT guy I've ever met just has that at least one percent psychoticness to them. They're the people who can very easily thread into a conversation with you. I know how much porn you watch. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be hard-pressed to be like, hey, you know what? I bet you do. Yeah. Thank you. Happy happy System Administrator Day. Uh, your card is downstairs in the self-repair bay. You are much appreciated. Dot org. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so July the 30th, 1991, MTV announces it will split into three channels in 1993. Wait, it's three. So I remember MTV, was VH1 wasn't one of them? No, VH1 VH1 was a competitor. Oh. So it was MTV, MTV2, and then MTV Espanol. Oh, I wonder what the MTV Espanol was about. They had Beavis Y Butthead. That just showed the Rico Suave video over and over and over again. No, I just remember seeing the, the channel thing. I know it's pronounced E, but it just had, it, it's the letter Y in Spanish means and. It's pronounced E. So it, it said Beavis Y Butthead all the time on the on the channel, uh, on the channel catalog thing. I, I do remember them sort of breaking into multiple channels. I thought M2 was the one that, didn't that where they, where they shunted the music programming and some of the weirder stuff that they used to do? Right. Break. It's not like ESPN 2 where they have like soccer with fish attached to your feet. <laughs> yes, karate fighting with stuffed animals. Like, what the hell sport is this? <laughs> but the M- MTV 2 actually ended up being more like what MTV 1 was. It was a little bit more music videos, a little less flash, you know. Oh, okay. Um, so I used to, uh, there used to be a show. I think it was on M2, which I remember the logo was just M2, yeah. right? And it was called Amp, and it was all, like, house music. It was on super-duper late at night. Yep. And I used to watch that on, like, Friday nights. Huh. I, uh, I like house music. Yeah, and then, you know, it wasn't long after that split that MTV, you know, started getting away from the M part of MTV, uh, much too... Everybody in my generation's chagrin, man. Right. That is one thing that people just can't get over. Like you see it on Facebook, it pops up all the time. Oh, MTV doesn't play music anymore. Yeah, well, f- get over it. You know, this <laughs> they haven't played music in a long time. Yeah, exactly. This YouTube. If you miss it so much, just go to YouTube. You can type in whatever you want and you can watch it. And it's not like I say. I know I say this every single week about satellite radio. I do not get a check from satellite radio for their mentions, but I'm going to mention them again. But you can listen to the 80s channel, and you'll hear Alan Hunter, Nina Blackwood, and Mark Goodman. They all do shows. So you can listen to Nina Blackwood, say, like, for the 42,000th time. 
I remember the time I met David Lee Roth. <laughs> Before they play Jump, you know? Yeah. Because, like, that's all they do. They just, like, they're, like, caught in a time loop. They must want to die. I'm <laughs> sure at some point, if I listen to it long enough, she's going to be like, please, someone come kill me. <laughs> come please. Up, come up to Maine and kill me, please. I've just, it's like Groundhog Day. I've jumped out of the window six times, and I just wake up <laughs> to Sonny and Cher. Because all you sons of bitches out there won't stop bitching that we don't play music on MTV anymore. For the love of God, if I have to hear the Thompson twins one more time, I'm going to set myself on fire. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and wrapping up the week. July 31st, 1976, the face that launched a thousand conspiracy theories. Uh, NASA releases the famous Viking One photo showing the face on Mars, immediately launching speculation again that there is some long lost civilization on the red planet building on the original theory that Percival Lowell created because he mistranslated channels for canals or something in right. the, like 1910. And this photo of uh, what looks very much like a face with like a hat on, not a happy hat, like a, like the hat you'd see like if you're looking at it, if they put a hat on Easter Island statues right. made out of rock, this is what it would look like. And it's like, oh, that looks just like a face. And if you look at it now, the picture from the Viking One voyage looked just like a face. And it stayed like that until many years later, another mission went back with a better camera. You know, yeah, they couldn't find it. Yeah, (laughs) it doesn't look like a face at all. It looks like a big pile of sand. Right. I I was listening to another podcast. (gasps) Shh, don't tell Jeff. I was listening to another podcast that was talking about not so much conspiracy theories, but like Internet rumors and how they start and how impossible they are to kill once they do start. Yes. Like you could say, I don't just like, you know, pick a celebrity. You know, Billie Eilish is dead. And then Billie Eilish will come on screen and be like, uh, hi. I'm, I'm I, not dead yet. No, she'd be like, <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm not dead. I'm not dead. And then, and then, like, every conspiracy theorist in the world will, like, double down. Deep fake. That's an actress. This, that, I mean, you don't even have to go as far as Billie Eilish. There are rumors that say that Avril Lavigne is dead. I heard that Chad Kroger ate her. Is that <laughs> true? No, he's just writing songs for her now. <laughs> but like, yeah, like the rumors start and they're just impossible to stop. And yeah, the, there was an interesting podcast I just listened to recently about that. Oh, I'll have to check it out. Yep. It's called Tiffany Dover is Dead, I think it's called. Tiffany Dover is Dead. I'll check it out for sure. All right. And let's get on to the celebrity birthday. Oh, by the way, Tiffany Dover is not dead. Um... Moving on to the celebrity birthday. Are you Some, sure? I'm pretty sure. Uh, somebody who is dead, uh, but her birthday is July the 25th, 1923. Estelle Getty, who you would yeah, it would you would know as Sophia on uh, Golden Girls, who was the 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 character that B. Arthur played. Estelle Getty was her mom, and Estelle Getty in real life is actually one year younger than B. Arthur. So that's pretty funny that she played her mom, yeah. Huh. Yeah, she's uh, she's a character actor. She played like a lot. Of, I mean, everybody just remembers her from the Golden Girls. But she was on a bunch of different things. Like she was in Tootsie, just like a little like walk-on role. She was in Stuart Little and Mannequin. Stop, stop my mom will shoot where she yes. probably out-acted Sylvester Stallone. Amen. He got a gun to shoot. That was like right as he was coming to the end of his action period in the 90s before he was reborn as another action star, as an older action star. 
Yeah, and then she did all like the you know the Fantasy Island, Cagney and Lacey, those kind of things, and all that. Right. Arguably the funniest character on Golden Girls, but I'm quite sure I'm quite sure some people would challenge that. All right, next up. All right, July 26, 1921. This one's going to run a little bit long, so strap in, everybody. Uh, Gene Shepard. He's a writer. You'd probably know his name if I say the, the thing that you probably most know is A Christmas Story. He wrote that story yes. uh, as short story series called, like, My Old Man, which is what it was based on, and appears in the film as one of the guys in line, the one who says, the line starts here, but it ends over there. That's, that's Gene Shepard. Sure. Prior to that film coming out, back in the 50s when he was a radio DJ in New York, he created one of the greatest literary and radio-based literary hoaxes in the history of the world. He was complaining about how he he ran like an overnight radio talk show. Sure. So he was doing this. He had listeners from all over the city and was complaining that the New York Times bestseller list was based on book requests that were made at bookstores. That's how they calculated the list. It wasn't actually on sales. It was on the number of requests for specific books. Okay. So he proposed to the audience that they should go to all of their local bookstores and ask for a book called I Libertine by Frederick R. Ewing, which are, it's a non-existent book by a non-existent writer. (laughs) And, and the point being was like, he would be able to get this non-existent book. People would start to talk about it. There would be papers written about it. There would be reviews of it. And all of this stuff happened for a non-existent book. It ended up on the bestseller list and it didn't, it didn't exist. So wait, people wrote reviews of a book that doesn't exist. Yes. And it became cocktail talk. It was talked about (laughs) on like, like late night TV shows and all this stuff. And he never made it a secret that he was proposing doing this on his radio show. He just kept doing it. Like keep going to the bookstores and talk about I Libertine by Frederick R. Ewing. And it became this big deal until finally somebody realized that this book doesn't exist and wrote like a New York times article and said like, this book that you're all talking about is not, it's not a thing. None of you have read it because it doesn't exist. And then ultimately figured out it was Gene Shepard because I guess he listened to Gene Shepard's show. Yeah. And ultimately Gene Shepard was approached and asked to actually put the book together. So he and a science fiction writer named Ted Sturgeon, Theodore Sturgeon, wrote I Libertine under the name Frederick R. Ewing and released it. And it became an actual bestseller. <laughs> this like fake biography of an 18th century Casanova. It's so funny. It's such a, such a funny story. And it shows like, again, we're talking about conspiracy theories, right? right. How media makes things real. Sure. Even if they're not necessarily real. Like I imagine my surprise when I found out that Betty Crocker wasn't a real woman. Damn. Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. You know who is a real woman? Uh, so much, so really, he's not even a woman at all. Uh, man by, <laughs> a man by the name of Norman Lear, who was born July 27th, 1922. You could not uh, watch or enjoy any 1970s television without running into Norman Lear. He was an American producer and writer, mostly sitcoms. He did All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Maude, The Jeffersons, One Day at a Time. There was a soap opera spoof that was really popular for like two years and then just vanished called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Yeah, yeah, that was that was one of his uh, as well. Yeah, just iconic 1970s sitcom stuff. I mean, every single one of those we watched around the house except for maybe one or two, but most of them, yeah. Oh, Good Times, Good Times was his as well. Yep, you almost couldn't not run into a Norman Lear production like between 73 or so and like 77. Right. As far as sitcoms go, his stuff was definitely the longest lasting and, and the most consistently awarded, I think, for American sitcoms, too. 
All right, moving on to the 28th. Speaking of real actual women, uh, July 28th, 1972, American actress Elizabeth Berkley, probably best known for her role as Jessie on Saved by the Bell, another sitcom that ran for a long time. Yeah, that was like a daytime sitcom. And then transitioned into uh, feature films with, I, I don't know if Showgirls was her first feature film. But it's probably her last. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably best known for when it was first released. It was critically savage that made no money and uh, almost wiped out the director's career. But in retrospect, it's gone on to have sort of a cult status where the quality of the goofiness of the film and the over the topness of the film sort of stands out and makes it really, really watchable. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's fun. It's a fun way to spend about 110 minutes. I saw it whenever it came out, not in the theater, but like whenever it was released in video, because there was such a, a notor- notoriety to it, I guess you want to say. Yeah, it's it's not a good movie, but it was just, it was interesting to see the nerd from Saved by the Bell playing such a very different character. Yeah, and you can I think Paul Verhoeven is has a lot to to do with that. Like his it was really strangely cast, but it was it wasn't bad. And like he's known for over the top action movies and real like satirical think pieces and if you look at this film the same way you look at robocop or starship troopers or whatever right you'll see a lot of parallels in the way that he tells the story again i i don't think it's a bad film at all uh one interesting thing about showgirls i'm not sure if it was the first but it was a very early nc-17 movie and it was the first time i i had ever seen a red band trailer uh, anyway, it's too bad. And I don't want to lose the thread of this. Like, it's not just the film that's interesting. But Elizabeth Berkeley is good in it. She's a good actress. And I'm hoping that she's... I'm, I'm not going to go look at IMDb and be proven that she's been making 850,000 movies a week uh, no, since this movie does, came out. But I'm sure that she has. She doesn't have a lot. That was pretty much a, a career killer for her. She had a very upwards at 45 degree trajectory at that point. It just... It was a career killer. I mean, she's done stuff, but... I think she could have done a lot more if it wasn't for that movie. Yeah, it's it's hard to make the transition from like teeny bopper, soap opera type mm-hmm. comedy into something that is as robust as an NC-17 film where she's doing like lines of coke off of Kyle McLaughlin's butt cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? All right. Uh, moving on to the 29th, July the 29th, 1953. Canada's favorite son, Getty Lee, the bass player, singer, keyboard player, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, from Rush. He is like 50% hair and nose, uh, but yeah. a great a great bass player. It seems yeah. to be a pretty cool guy, too. And like all the interviews that I see with him, he and Alex Lifeson are very, very down to earth. Like they are the most Canadian men in the history of Canada. Considering the seriousness of the subject matter of their songs and the proficiency and virtuosity of their music, you would think that they would just be like these, hello, my name is Geddy Lee from Rush. But no, they're wicked funny guys, like super down to earth, hilarious. I remember seeing them one time on some YouTube channel or whatever, where they were playing the video game Rock Band, Mm -hmm. but they were playing their own song, and they failed out. You know, and <laughs> Kenny Lee just turns around to Neil Peart and he goes, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right. What do we got for the 30th? July 30th, 1968, former NFL linebacker for the Washington Redskins and current actor, uh, Terry Crews, probably best known for his role as the police captain on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where he's very funny. 
He's also uh, very funny in a ton of Old Spice commercials. Yeah, that's probably where I best know him from, yeah. And for me, his, like, real breakout role is, like, two scenes in the movie White Chicks, which no one should watch because the movie's terrible, but he is so funny. He is so funny in that movie. He also played uh, President Camacho in Idiocracy. Great, great guy. Great yeah. actor. Another one, like, you look at him, and he just looks like he's chiseled. He looks like a, a statue in Greece. And, also, uh, like, a super Lego collector. Like, he makes super ornate, yeah, he does super-duper ornate Legos uh-huh. and plays a ton of Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, and, and like, as I was saying, for the shape that guy's in, it's off-putting how funny he is and, like you're just saying, how, like, quirky and nerdy he is as well. Yep. All right, and wrapping up the week on the 31st, July the 31st, 1932, a man by the name of Ted Cassidy, who everybody would know as Lurch, from the original Adams Family television series. Right? Yep. Is that sort of the noise that he made? <laughs> yeah. You rang. Kind of guy, yeah. yeah. Oddly enough, his speaking voice wasn't that deep. He could make the deep voice of the character, but his speaking voice was just kind of regular, regular guy. Uh, I did not know this, but he was the voice of the narrator at the beginning of the Incredible Hulk TV series. Yes. And uh, I feel like we should spill a little bit of, of truth about today's episode, about our conversation before we started to record, where neither of us were really sure that that was him yeah. until we went and found another voice of him in another show. And we're like, oh, wow, that really is. Yeah. That really is him. So, it's like, no, that can't be him. Yeah. It, it just seems really high for a guy who's that tall and, and, and lurchy. Yeah. <laughs> and also real like quirky information about him is he was a, a disc jockey in Dallas at the time of the Kennedy assassination, he was actually one of the first people to interview eyewitnesses. Oh. Yeah. There's a little nugget of information for you. And uh, here's a little another nugget right here. The worst song ever. All right, Jeff, what do we got in the canon this week? (laughs) Okay. This is a tough one because... We're starting to look more obliquely at how we describe music that falls into the worst song ever category. So sometimes the worst song ever comes from a band that is universally loved, but a song that they do sucks ass. This is one of those examples. And it's not even a question of relative sucks ass. This song just sucks ass. It doesn't matter who does it, but it happens to be the Beatles. Go big or go home. I'm going to strap the napalm to the sacred cow and blow it to smithereen. The song that we're talking about today appears on the White Album, which... Truth Be Told is my least favorite Beatles album. Yeah, the White Album for me has always been... It seems like cutting room floor stuff. Like, yeah, this didn't make it to the other albums. Let's just all combine it. They definitely needed a producer to be like, no, we're not putting that on this record. And (laughs) yes, we're putting that on this. No, we're not putting it in that order. And why is this... This whole like fourth side is just unlistenable. It's it's very disjointed. stop, you know? Yeah, Yeah. it's totally disjointed. It doesn't hold together. What song are we talking about here? We are talking about the great, 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 great grandfather of all white boy ska songs, Obla D. Obla Da. Oh, 
So at, at this point in time in the Beatles, John and Paul basically had to be like pulled apart off of each other. They were fighting tooth and nail. They were kind of like writing songs like back and forth at each other to like kind of middle finger the other one. Yep. Because John was an angry dude and his music reflected that. He was always like, oh, Paul's always writing the bubblegum stuff. And then Paul was like, he's always writing the angry stuff. The song Helter Skelter, which is on this album, Paul wrote that as like a middle finger to John. And then while they were writing Obla Dee Obla Da, John got so fed up with how bubblegum it is that he like stomped out of the studio and stayed out like for like hours. It's it's not a good song. I, I think, <laughs> I, I mean, like just, I mean, overall, like it's, it's well known that Paul, Paul McCartney at this point in the Beatles career was like the, the Stanley Kubrick of music, right? Let's play it one more time. Let's play it one more time. Let's play it one more time. Let's let's we're gonna play it one more time. We're gonna mess with it. We're gonna play it one more time, right? To the point where everybody wants to just. Oh my God! Imagine him. Imagine him hooking up with Phil Spector. <laughs> like, I can I can imagine. It'd still be recorded. <laughs> but again, they needed somebody with a strong personality to sort of wrangle in how this album was put together. Anyway, this song, and I, the reason I call it the great great granddaddy of all like white boy reggae and ska songs is because it is the great great granddaddy of them. If you listen to this, this song. The elements of this song are heard in like every Sublime song and every UB40 song and every yeah, it's it's on the offbeat. And it's got the horns in it, and it's got it has a, a a bunch of things going for it that make it qualified for the worst song ever. It is a story song, that sucks. <laughs> it is a stupid story song that also sucks, yeah. and it has some dumb lyrics in it. There was a there's a lot of like YouTube videos you can watch that like this is one of those songs that gets like universally shat on for the Beatles. I don't think it's their worst song. I don't think it's the Beatles. I don't even think it's the worst song on this no, album. I don't think it's the worst song on this album. But I'll tell you why this I, this song falls into this category. Because it still gets played a ton on the radio. I listen to the radio a lot. And it's still... Mm-hmm. Of all the Beatles music that you could put on, this is the song that shows up most often. Because it's non-threatening. It is... About three and a half minutes. It is it has a chorus that's sing-alongable, even if it's stupid. You've got the components in there where Paul McCartney's laughing, and it seems like it's just a, like, hey, we're throwing this together right now, ha-ha, and recording it live when you know it's like take 726. The story I get, and it's, it's one of those stories, like, depending on who you listen to, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that, like, John got pissed at this song and, like, ran out of the studio and then came back, you know, hours later... The rest of the guys were working on it, and they just couldn't figure out how they were going to get this song to go. And then, as Paul puts it, he goes, and then John came back, and he sits down at the piano, and he starts playing it, like, really fast, you know, the way the song starts. He goes, and then it just fell into place, and that's how we wrote the song. And then you hear, like, another interview from somebody else that, like, John came in and started hammering on the piano, making fun of the song and how, like bubblegum it was you know john did that as like a middle finger to paul and it ended up just working john's probably laughing all like rolling around in his grave laughing about it my first exposure to this i didn't have the white album until i was a proto-adult but i did have the beatles greatest hits 1967 and 1972 where this song is one of the tracks on that the blue greatest hits album it's one of the tracks on there so it's always been like the dead spot on that record for me Yep. And then when I got skip, yeah, let's <laughs> track skip. skip, right? Track skip. It's 
not the best song on the greatest hits album. And it's it's weird that it's on there because this was never released as a single in the United States. It was it wasn't released in the UK either. Like the band was like, eh, I don't know if this is single material, but let's face it, Paul, the song sucks. It's not gonna it's not <laughs> gonna go anywhere. In forty years, they'll never be playing this continuously on the radio. Still, and of course, they are. No, you know what? They're gonna use it though. They're gonna use it as the theme song to the Wonder Years, and. Guess what? That's that's my horrible segue because it was on the Wonder Years soundtrack, but the Wonder Years soundtrack is not the greatest selling soundtrack of all time. Yes, our very popular and always well received trivia question, Jeff. What is the best selling soundtrack of all time? Of all time. Of all time. I'm pretty sure I know this one, and I know this one because I remember this this single from it that went. It's pretty much stayed on the charts the same way E.T. stayed at the movies in North Dartmouth. <laughs> so it was on the charts for like a year or more. Um, Go on. And I'm pretty sure that the... Are we going to start season five with you getting the trivia question right? I think right? we are. Is it going to happen? It, I'm pretty sure that it's the soundtrack to the uh, Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston movie, The Bodyguard. Ding, 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 ding. Was it that one? All right. I was, I was wavering between that one and Titanic and Star Wars, but... I'm I'm pretty sure because of the strength of the Dolly Parton cover of "I Will Always Love You." One in a that row. That's the mo- the best selling one. So one in a row. Whew. All right. Nowhere to go but up. Fifty one more to go. Can we make the whole year? <laughs> no. No, absolutely not. Next, year you'll ask me, next next week you'll ask me a math question, and I'll be like, uh, eight. Next nope, year. Sorry, it's six. What okay. color am I thinking of? <laughs> what is my favorite color? Yellow. Uh, oh, it's kind of an off yellow. Off yellow. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but that's going to wrap it up for this week. Happy anniversary, Jeff. All right, man. Happy anniversary. All right. And say goodnight, Bill. Say goodnight, Bill. Goodnight, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme song. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, if everybody who listens to this show gets one more person to listen, we'll double our listenership. Mm.